Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. Oh, my David, Kieran Murphy and Ken Erdy are all here, all present. Hello there, all. And if you think Ken sounds a bit... Well, actually, you sounded pretty decent there, Ken. I thought you'd be down in the dumps because you've had a fascination with Bill Belichick for a long time. Oh, yeah. He's probably your favourite evil genius in sport. But it turns out you've got it all wrong. We've all had it all wrong all these years. The guy is squeaky clean compared to the real Machiavellian figure, the American hero, Tom Brady, Murph. Hero yeah. turned villain. Tell us the news. Well, it turns out he's been deflating footballs, so and I don't quite know how else to put it. Hang on, have we not? Have we just gone back in time five months or? Well, so? we just had to wait for the two hundred and forty-three page NFL investigative report to come out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two hundred and forty-three pages again on a uh, deflated which included football. a sixty-eight page scientific report and appendices. <laughs> But uh, Murph's halfway through the appendices at the moment. Uh, yeah, hasn't got through it all. Just so, bear with yeah. me. If if I just had a couple of more days, uh, <laughs> could have been a real, uh, real uh, source of knowledge on this. But yes, it turns out uh, Tom Brady, more probably than not, is a cheat. A cheat. And Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick. Clear is, on this one. I mean, it's it's like one of those, um, you know, one of one of those uh, uh, detective dramas yeah. where there's a guy who appear, like he's definitely done. Yeah. I mean that that guy, the caretaker. He's he's definitely murdered that, yeah, yeah. the girl. He's definitely done that. Yeah. And then it turns out it wasn't the caretaker at all. It was. It was uh, actually her, her rich father. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, that's basically what the Bill Belichick is the caretaker. Yeah. Uh, shifty looking caretaker. You know. So there's something there's something fishy with that guy. But it turns out that was a red herring. Give us a little bit of the report there. Give us a bit of the the scoop on Tom Brady. Well, basically. Uh, uh, the the upshot of this is that uh, uh, after the Indianapolis Colts New England Patriots playoff game this year, the Colts said there's something up with the footballs. They're deflated. They're not they're pumped to the correct level. Yeah. Uh, Tom Brady did a press conference a couple of days after denying it, and the upshot of the report is that 
two guys who we've never heard of have taken the blame. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, uh, what are their names? Uh, we'll, for posterity, Jim McNally, a locker room attendant, and John Jastremski, an equipment assistant, right. uh, had released air from the footballs uh, for that AFC title game against the Indianapolis Colts. Why did they do um, that? Uh, well, the, the, the presumption of the report is that Tom Brady couldn't not have known about this. Yeah. Um, that they present, uh, that you ha- it, it's unbelievably unlikely that Tom Brady didn't know about it when he handled the footballs and didn't know about it. Tom Brady gave it did. to the investigation. Gave it the. Oh, I don't even know that guy. Yeah. Uh, who are they? Who are these? Who are these little fellas? <laughs> I don't, I don't know them. A lot, now, of, lot of guys walking out of this locker room. What might have helped the investigators would would have been if Tom Brady had exceeded their request to you know see some of his text messages and emails around that time just yeah. to see if he does have a relationship with them. Mm. Tom Brady thought, listen, we're going into too much detail. You've already got 263 pages. Yeah. You don't need to see my emails, do you? So you refuse <laughs> to hand them over. Cut down another tree, yeah. I mean, the rainforest disappeared out of red dots. We might actually hear, we go back to the original press conference that you mentioned there after the incident. This is what Brady had to say. I don't believe so. I mean, I feel like I've always played within the rules. I would never do anything to break the rules. Um, you know, I believe in fair play and I respect the league and, you know, everything that they're doing to try to create a very competitive uh, playing field for all the NFL teams. Juliet McCurry, was Juliet McCurry, I think, this New York Times piece yep. I was reading earlier, a really good journalist who we've spoken before. She, you know, everyone's kind of joking about it, but it, it, it's, for Brady, it's pretty huge. Like, she's making the point this affects his legacy massively, that when people are talking about all these stats that he has, the, she talks about it in the same way that in this part of the world, we often talk about performance-enhancing drugs. You know, there's an, an asterisk beside any of these, mm. any of these achievements and when he's compared to the other great, he maybe shouldn't even be compared to the other great quarterbacks because we don't know if he would have been able to. The presumption she's making is that this wasn't the first time that he's deflated footballs or done something well, I mean, like this un- to get an unfair un- advantage. It's a pretty unbelievable coincidence if uh, they just happened to find it that yeah. time. But I mean, by the way, the technical uh, um, technical advantage is that it's easier to grip, apparently, particularly in cold weather. I think when the ball has slightly yeah. less pressure in it. I mean, yeah, it's 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 not quite as trivial as it <laughs> as it sounds. Um, and certainly the the idea in America is that this does damage his legacy hugely because you, you're I mean you're talking now about it uh, you heard in the question there three time Super Bowl winner two time MVP now he's a four time Super Bowl winner three time MVP mm-hmm. so he um, yeah I mean it's it's it, it is it's it's a it's a it's a very very strange thing for Tom Brady to have to try and handle now um, uh, whether I you know you, you have to think right in a situation like this how much is this is is this playing the rule book a little or is it outright cheating? I mean, it sounds to me like, okay, it's an advantage, but you do it until you get caught in the same way that, you know, a free taker in Gaelic football advances five yards until the referee tells him to go back to... The interesting, interesting Tom Brady factoid here, Ken. Mm-hmm. This is from the Judy McCurr article. She was trying to outline how, of course, he knew about this. We all knew he knew about this. A, f- a, d- a deliberate ploy to change his equipment would not have gone unnoticed by the most meticulous man in American sports. And by, and by the way, it is only his equipment, right? It's not like... No, it's he, not the other, the other team. team are no, using no, the other team had their own balls. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, that's the key so thing. So he's, it is a big advantage. Yeah, it, and it, so it is a big deal in that context. But Brady's the kind of guy who, according to one report, says Juliet, uh, Juliet McCurr, eats 80% alkaline foods and 20% acidic foods. Wow. He's very strict on his 
alkaline acidity breakdown. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I gotta say, I've never looked at that part of my diet yeah. maybe closely enough. I mean, if if <laughs> if you could walk to the supermarket and buy, say, four bags of alkaline and like one bag of acid, <laughs> then I would think about it. But it just seems like a lot of effort to go to, to get the exact measurements of alkaline foods and acidic foods. But hey, you know, I'm not Tom Brady. Well, yeah. I mean, um, uh, are we, do you mean al- acid foods or, or acid acidic. forming or alkaline forming or acid or... Like, okay, alkaline forming foods include most fruits, green vegetables, peas, beans, lentils, spices, herbs, seasoning, seeds, nuts. Acid forming foods include meat, fish, poultry, eggs, grain, and legumes. Most of the nice stuff is in the acid forming. Yeah, and you're, that's only one fifth of your your daily intake. You know, Tom, I'm I'm actually I'm probably going to just stick with my own diet. I, this alkaline. All the nice, food. all the nice stuff is in the acid forming. I kind of guessed that. Alka- I guess he was eating mostly the good stuff. Alkaline, basically anything green and healthy is is pretty much alkaline. Mm. You know, so yeah. uh, technically that could be deemed cheating as well. I mean, you can't deny yourself all the acidic foods uh, in the world. Uh, now, all the dairy stuff as well. That's just, oh, geez. very disappointing, this list. Uh, this is just a whole new thing to feel depressed about <laughs> as, I, as I continue making no changes to my lifestyle. Ken, uh, I've seen your head buried in a book all week. The oh, title yeah. of that book is Throne. The author, Kerry Howley, we were speaking to today. Your expressions, I'd like to observe you when you're reading, you know. See, what's oh, Ken? Yeah. How's he? Is he digging this book? What's he thinking about it? I was, to be honest, I, it was hard to read at times. You certainly seemed engrossed, mm-hmm. but you had quite a quizzical expression. That, so you were, this is this is a strange take on the UFC. It's about UFC, uh, the sport of UFC. Can you explain it to us? Well, it's, it's about, not, it's it's not about an easy MMA. Book to explain, I don't think, but uh, mixed, MMA, mixed yeah. martial arts um, and uh, Carrie Hadley, She's a very good writer. Um, very, very well written book uh, with a lot of interesting ideas in it. Um, it's it's essentially I mean it's it's conventional enough in some ways I mean essentially it's this girl who um, spends time hanging out with two different uh, fighters one of them is kind of an older guy he's like thirty two or you know about thirty two mm-hmm. he's kind of he's never quite made it to the big time lost a lot of fights you know he's still kind of fighting uh, and then there's a younger guy um, who's who was actually in the same weight division as Conor McGregor the featherweight division he who actually was in the UFC. Right. Um, uh, he's kind of on the way up, you know. So she kind of is like hanging out with these guys, alternating between them, uh, and sort of following their career and talking a lot about. Also, what she's doing is is, is writing kind of philosophical treatise on like the nature of ecstatic experience. Essentially, she wanders in to see this. Uh, she's at some boring conference in in you know somewhere in the American Midwest, and and stumbles across in the same conference center this um, fight night, you know. And she goes in and she's watching it. She's suddenly kind of like, wow, this is amazing. You know, watching it, she kind of feels like uh, she's, it's like a, a, an experience beyond the ordinary. You know, she's kind of uh, really kind of gripped by it. And uh, so she's kind of then going in pursuit of that or trying to nail down what that is. And that's really what the book is about. I mean, it's very, it's, it's, the, the interesting thing about it is that the, you, you're kind of reading this and you, you assume that, okay, this is all Carrie Howley, the author, you know. But actually, the person who's narrating it is a fictional invention. The guys in it are real. The people are real and all the events are real. But the person who's narrating the whole story is fictionalized. So Ah, that might have been where the quizzical expression came in. Yeah, I mean, she kind of says at one point, well, look, all narrators are fictional anyway. I mean, you're a fictional alone. I mean, who are you really? Like, if you were to write a book about yourself in your own voice, you would be presenting a version of yourself which wasn't the whole truth. 
and probably making up a lot of stuff too. I'm not just, suggesting just, that just you're just to pat it out and make it interesting. I'm not suggesting you're a pathological liar. Just that you didn't. Uh, can we just be clear? That's not what you said. That's not what I said. You didn't say that. About no, it. just an ordinary liar like all of us. Yeah, and we, we any, know, of course, what Owen's fictional narrator would be called. Ian McDinwit. Ian McDinwit. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a book about the intellectual allure of mixed martial arts. No, not really. Oh, come on, I need to pin it down on something <laughs> no, so I can move on no, with the no. rest of the show. She's, I we mean, just see that, maybe part, part of if I had a quizzical expression is I wasn't quite sure sometimes how seriously to take it or if she's kind of winding the reader up a little bit. Like with, with, this, with this narrator who's always like, you know, talking about Schopenhauer and Heidegger and so on. You're kind of there going... Hang on a second, you know. We know what we're talking about here. A couple of lads like knocking seven bells out of each other, you know what I mean? But you see, that's why I'm kind of I'm, I'm kind of like, okay, is I think there's a bit of irony going on here, you know, in the sense that she... Sounds really good. Yeah, it is. It's, 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 it is very good. We'll talk to Kerry Howdy a little bit later on. We're starting with the rugby, Ulster against Munster in Belfast on Saturday. The winner will almost certainly get a home semi-final. And the league, Simon's here to talk a little bit about this. How are you? Yeah, it's good. Uh, against the, this match takes place against the backdrop of the... O'Connell to Toulon rumours which we talked about in Monday show a little bit but the reason I bring it up now is that Anthony Foley has had his say this week had his latest say on it Yeah well he's been asked about it over the last few weeks since it first emerged and initially he said you know it's a nonsense it's a nuisance these are direct quotes people are probably trying to cause trouble to try and interfere with our run-in um, I don't know if he's pointed that at the media or Toulon or um, maybe a bit of both mm-hmm. but then he was talking to Limerick's Live 95 radio station this week and he said it's like tapping up a player isn't it a fellow who's in contract he's our player until the end of next season uh, Boujalal who's the owner of Toulon can go after whatever he wants but we would like him to leave our players alone to be All honest right, with yeah. you so, so originally yeah, it sounds like originally he might have been annoyed at the, it was Jerry Thorny who, spoke, who broke the yeah. story that maybe that, that this story was out there so maybe he was looking at the media side of it but that sounds very much like he's annoyed with Toulon well, at this stage, I think he probably is because yeah. it's leaking out. It, and first, they could totally first it was Mitchell, it, yeah. but there's been two or three players since. And then we know that uh, Laporte has been speaking on French radio as well. So it's like they're deliberately leaking bits of information to keep stoking the thing. Well, Alan Quinn, Quinlan joins us now. Alan, is Foley right to be annoyed, do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, Boujalal is, uh, he can do that. He has the money. Um, everyone is linked with him, really. And I think um, he likes that kind of attention to, to, to have a player of Paula Collins' stature being linked to their club. Um, you know, they're signing Nano next year in Nalanga, uh, Manu Samoa, they've Quaid Cooper, possibly a few French guys as well. Um, he can just put out the checkbook there. And it's a fairly, um, it'd be a nice proposition if you were a player in your mid-20s uh, being asked to go to the, the, the south of France because not alone are you going to a nice climate, but you're, you're joining a winning team. And um, I think Foley is probably right. Um, Paul is such a, an integral part of not just the playing group, but the whole organisation, the morale. We see the impact he can have around the squad. Um, who knows how, how high his level of performance will be next year. Nothing would surprise about Paul to go on and have a great season next year. But um, he's really important. And I think Foley, yeah, is a bit, is a bit peed off. And, and, uh, and probably it's getting a bit frustrating at this stage now as well for him. Alan, rugby players very rarely break their contracts um, and I suppose rugby isn't used to what maybe is Real Madrid type tactics where they sort of put a few things out in the media, some of the current players at Toulon such as Drew Mitchell talking about how they'd love to have Paul there. They work quite a cagey game and they've been really successful out in the past. Do you think other rugby teams aren't quite used to it yet, That, that the, almost football tactics in the transfer market? Yeah, it doesn't happen. It hasn't happened I suppose since, since rugby went professional in '95. Um, people sign contracts, they fulfil their contracts, 
uh, they either sign new ones or they move on. Um, and we're probably getting to new territory, really, with the money that's in the game, where some, sometimes guys will be getting tapped up throughout their contracts and, and, and looking to leave. But I, I think there's no precedent there for it. Um, so I don't think it's... it's all, there's always a danger, and you never know. And like they say in, in the Premiership football, you never know in football... Uh, thankfully we're not saying that in rugby because there is a good structure there and there's there's kind of you know people honor their contracts but Paul is not his contractors and and this is this is a really important point that some pe- times people are missing he's contracted until the end of the 2016 season mm. so yeah. unless monster release him unless the RFU release him he's playing until then i think the only way they'll release him is if he's retiring um and you know, I suppose Drew Mitchell coming out and say, if I was playing in Toulon, I'd, I'd say the exact same thing. I'd love to have someone like Paul O'Connell, what he's achieved in the game. We saw what Matfield um, was able to do at 37-38. Um, he's looking at going to another World Cup and uh, very, very similar to Paul. Phenomenal athletes and, and their influence is, is incredible. So, you know, Toulon can do that. Um, I'm still not clear though, Alan, as to why exactly it would bother. I, I understand the, these tactics that they're trying to employ here, but if Munster are 100% comfortable in their own skin, if they're completely confident that Paul O'Connell will either retire or see out his contract and not go to Toulon, why don't they? Can they not just let it go and not even worry about the, yeah, about rich I, French I, owners? I, I I think the same, but the, the reason being is I think Anthony Foley is getting sick of being asked about it. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that's fair enough. That's probably um, the most annoying thing because um, he's trying to like. In fairness to the guy, he's under a fair bit of pressure. He has been all season, as you do when you take over a job like that. Um, and he's he's preparing for Ulster this weekend, a pro a run into the Pro Twelve semi-finals. And he's continually being asked about Paul O'Connell. What's he doing? Is he going to Toulon? Are you keeping him? So I suppose that's that's probably the frustration. I think he'd be, you know, I'd be amazed if 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 it happened. But you never know, really. Um, then if Paul O'Connell knocks on your door or goes to the IRFU or, or to Munster and says, "Look, I'd love to go to France. I feel my time is done here. My heart or head is not in it." Yeah, you never know, but. As far as I know, I think he's kind of contracted until the end of the season, um, 2015-16 season. He is probably weighing up a situation, whether, and he said that himself last week, whether he's going to retire after the World Cup or continue on that year. Um, so I suppose Foley needs to just uh, maybe not react or not bite to it um, and just say he doesn't know anything about it, really. Yeah, I hadn't considered that the element that it's it's not like he's calling press conferences to talk about this. It's He's doing his press conferences and being asked the same stuff the whole time, which is, I guess, the, what you have to do as a coach in, in rugby now and in all sports. But just on the match itself against Ulster and the running that you talk about there, the pressure that's been on Anthony Foley and the Munster setup. How pressurised is the situation now? I mean, it's, such a, it's the same at Ulster, I guess, in that really dis- properly disappointing, dispiriting European campaigns, Saracens destroying Munster in their case. Uh, how much pressure does that put on these next few weeks, trying to get a home semi-final and, and try and actually win this league? Well, with the expectation that's there in all the provinces, uh, it's starting to creep into Connacht now, um, Ulster, Munster, Leinster. You know, um, there's a demand and there's an investment in, in players and coaches and and the organisations, and I think Europe is the place to be. It's the place to compete. Um, your domestic league is very, very important. But I think you know, always when you want, you want to try and be looking forward to quarterfinals, semi-finals of 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 European Cup, um, and that kind of 
it keeps the season going. So for 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 Ulster and Munster to have been out at the in, in January, it's a big blow. It's it's a big it's a big blow for the whole organisation. And and then the pressure starts to heap on, and the expectation from the from the supporters and and the media and stuff um, escalates, if you like. And uh, so that pressure has been there. And uh, and I've said this about both Ulster and Munster. I think. You know, being a player, and I always try and think, what, what would I be thinking in that, that, that space, um, especially one of the more experienced ones? Uh, if I look back at the end of my season, I'd say, you know, if we won the Pro 12, um, you can kind of bin Europe and then say, look, we were in a tough group, money is changing, you can, you can kind of make legitimate excuses, and, and, and they are legitimate, some of them. Um, but you say, right, we got a trophy, we, we reacted, we showed some resilience. Um, we are moving in the right direction. We are rebuilding, but we're moving forward. You lose a semi-final and, and uh, you know, away from home or, or at home or whatever, or lose the final, that memory lasts with you. And, and, and that's what kind of people, rightly or wrongly, will judge you on, that you've won nothing, you went out in Europe, and you're like, well done, you got to the semi-final or final, but you lost, you didn't win it. So that's the kind of pressure that both groups are facing. Um and it's a bit harsh. It may sound harsh, but I think that's the, the level of expectation that's out there. I wouldn't judge it solely on winning the trophy, but I would, I'd nearly be saying, yeah, you've got to try and be in the mix there, thereabouts, if you've an unlucky loss or something. But if you, you know, you're only as good as your last match, and if you, if you end up losing the game badly, um, it's kind of remembered, and you take that into the summer then, and, and, and that disappointment stays. It's a good point, Alan. There are good pieces on the pressure on the two provinces. Um, if you look at the nature of their losses in Europe, maybe that puts even more pressure on because uh, Toulon put up uh, 60-odd points on Ulster and the Saracens-Munster game was one of the worst maybe in, in Munster's European history in terms of performance on a big day. And when that's in the back of your mind, from that point on, they're literally thinking Pro 12 because those results kind of knock them out of the European competition. So it's a long time building up in your head. And then when Leinster, who at the start of the season, I would say both those other provinces would have said they're going to be our main rival, when they're out of it, that adds another layer of pressure. Yeah, it does. There's no doubt. Um, I think it was, as you say, the manner of the performances was disappointing. Um, look, it is very difficult to compete with, uh, with, with the French finances. And even look at the Saracen squad, just the depth of the squad, um, the level of experience they have and the money they have to spend. So... You know, Munster and, and, and Leinster dominated for a number of years, and that's changed. So they've got to evolve and try and find ways of maximising their finances, uh, si- signing really shrewdly uh, to, to get back and compete in Europe. You look back at the Clermont game, uh, going back to your question, that was that for me, that was the, the major disappointment, to lose that game at home in Limerick. Um, Clermont, phenomenally powerful side, but... Um, you know, Munster losing that game. That's what cost them effectively because, you know, teams qualified. I think one team qualified in 16 or 17 points. And if Munster won that game, they would have been in the quarterfinals. Um, I think there's a minimum requirement every year for, for and it has to be the standard that, that you make the knockout stages. Um, it's getting harder and harder. But um, but in fairness to both provinces, Toulon dominated Ulster as well. Um, they both reacted and they've both been pretty resilient and consistent and what else do you do as a player? You kind of dust yourself down and, and, and as a group and coaches and say, well, right, we'll try and learn from this. It's, it's maybe something that has to be addressed at the end of the season, more depth and stuff like that. But they've both been pretty pretty uh, consistent in the Pro 12. 
and and they went out and performed pretty well. I think bar one bad loss that comes to mind with Munster over in Ospreys where they were really poor. They've ground out results and and uh, they've you know they've brought through some younger guys as well. I think Jack O'Donoghue has been a, a, a kind of a standout youngster for them during the season. Um, and some of the Ulster guys then have, have come back to form. Um, Craig Gilroy has been the best winger in the country. I think he's been electric. Um, he's been fantastic from Paddy Jackson is back in the mix as well. So, you know, there's some positives to be taken out of the season for both, but, you know, we'll judge them at the end of, uh, the end of the Pro 12 as well. There's also a World Cup. I mean, this is the other subplot that you've got internationals going head to head and it used to be, uh, back in the day, I guess this would be how the national team would be selected, largely on how these matches went. Uh, Ian Henderson's an interesting case in that he's in and around the Irish team. He's generally an impact sub, but he's been one of our most impressive performers, probably in European wise, for the last season or two. How much store do you think Schmidt puts in the in provincial form? It seems like he obviously likes to see people himself up close and what they're doing in training. Do you think anything that happens in these matches at the weekend or the rest of the season might influence any of that? Is that is that part of the player's mindset going in, right? Ian Henderson says, if I do a job here and Peter O'Mahony, I'm putting my hand up for selection for the for, or, or whatever, the, whatever, uh, whatever Munster player comes up against, I'm putting my hand up here for a World Cup selection. Yeah, there's no doubt. It's, it would be in the back of your mind. Um, you can't let it kind of dominate your mind because you could get lost then trying to be um you know trying to trying to do your own thing you gotta i think you gotta gotta focus on is 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 um feeding into the team and that's the kind of stuff doing the basics really well so something that we mightn't see as a spectator at the game or in on the tv like a bit of work rate to get up off the ground and fill a gap um and be there to make a next tackle stuff like that that doesn't stand out that's the stuff that joe schmidt likes the yeah. clean out technique uh, the work rate, um, you know, the the you know the tackle reload, all that stuff um, is really important. So not necessarily stuff we might see. So as a player, then you're going to have to work on the individual stuff, um, your connection and defence, your your kick retreat, all that stuff would be stuff that Joe Schmidt would really be big on, um, and and it's all kind of linked back into work rate and, and application and technique. So it's not really about, of course, you make big carries and big line breaks and you score two tries as a player, you're going to stand out, you're probably going to get man of the match. Um, but it's doing the basics really well. And I think that's the one thing that's come out of the, the group in the, in the last couple of years that's, once it has been leaked out, but that you, you hear from players is, is doing the basics really well. Um, so players have come in thinking they've had a great performance and they've done really well. And, you know, Joe Schmidt will highlight the three or four things that he was unhappy about. And, you know, you fix those problems and then you're on the right track. You look at someone like Simon Zebo, there was an issue with his, maybe his work rate and his defence and stuff. And, you know, I know he, he got dropped for the Scottish game, but I think he's made huge strides forward. So they're the kind of boxes that Joe Schmidt wants players to take, doing the basics really well. And games like this, you can't get kind of bogged down and trying to, trying to stand out yourself and, and look good. you just got to feed into the team and, and then you're on the right track for with the Irish selectors. Yeah, as a player, I guess you have to back the intelligence of Joe Schmidt that he's going to see those things you're talking about as opposed to the likes of myself watching it and being impressed by the, the tries, yeah, all the fancy yeah, you stuff. Can't, you can't really kind of look, God, I'm, I need to go out here and be selfish because you'll be found out a little bit and then you've got a, a responsibility to your own team. So it's it's not missing your tackles. It's making those hard yards, a couple of pick and goes if you're a forward, um, getting up off the ground, making a covering tackle, all that stuff, which 
you know, players will do naturally. It's just how well you do it and how consistent you do it throughout the game. Quick prediction, Alan, who's going to win this weekend? Well, I think I think Ulster have been the form team. Um, their performance in Connacht and and, and against Leinster in, in Raven Hill. It's a very very tough place to play, um, and it's going to be tough for Munster. So I'd I'd, I'd say Ulster are, are rightly favourites, and uh, will probably just nudge it. Okay, listen, great to talk to you. Thanks a million. Cheers, my pleasure. In the final round of the game. And Simon's been a decent amount written about the atmosphere up at Ravenhill now, whatever they're calling the stadium these days. One of these few stadia that maybe have improved somewhat uh, after being redeveloped. Yeah, we were saying off air. In terms of atmosphere. Yeah, we were talking about, say, Tolmond or the Aviva once they got redeveloped. It actually took good while for fans. I don't know what it is exactly, but just the, the change in the stadium, it takes a while for the atmosphere to you come back to what it was. You're comfortable yeah. in your seat and that's the, it, it deadens you, you know? Yeah. Uh, if you've spent years not being comfortable and then you're comfortable I think it's also that it's analysed if there's a, if there were a bunch of bad games in a row at Lansdowne yeah. Road atmosphere wise nobody mentions it because you know you'll get one eventually but when it, it took a while for the first big occasions to happen at the Viva Stadium but just sorry back to this one Jar, I, I bring it up because Jared Payne has been bigging up the Ulster fans uh, he's been one of their particularly successful imports and he's enjoying it yeah uh, New Zealander obviously um, and he was asked this week just about that atmosphere I think the Ulster fans may be they haven't had a whole lot of success in a way they're the most loyal of the four provinces because they just constantly fill out the stadium, constantly make noise. But he was asked about it and he was sort of comparing it to the Southern Hemisphere. He said, I'll probably get shot somewhere for saying this, but the way the Irish get behind get behind their teams, he's talking about the provinces and the national team, they're a lot more passionate. He's talking about the Southern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. It's a lot better than you get in the Super Rugby games. He's saying the Super Rugby stadiums are quite big, but you see them in the that they're often half empty and there's just this dead feeling. And he's sort of referring to New Zealand national team as well, like that for all their success, it's still quite often a dead stadium, even in the Tri Nation stuff. And, you know, this is a guy who's obviously got friends and family back home, so it's not, you know, he will have to face up to those quotes at some stage, the, but the, it's a reflection of how strongly he feels about it. Yeah, and the floating sports fan, uh, 
is affected by Super Rugby, uh, by when you're watching Super Rugby, to see it being played out in front of nearly entirely empty stadiums. And as you said, the stadiums are big. Like, they're very, very big in the games they're played. But it is, you know, I, I flick it on on a sort of Friday morning or Saturday morning, you're, you're watching these games, and it's like totally funereal atmospheres. And I'm just like, why would I watch it if, you know, no, none of the fans of, <laughs> these, of these teams don't want to watch it? You know? Yeah, exactly. I think it is actually a big thing. And, you know, the the atmosphere in the, the Kingspan Ravenhill it is actually brilliant and for the European Cup games uh, over the last couple of years when they've had to win and Friday night games and that like it is actually it, it's an exceptional atmosphere right, Murph hit us up with one of these that's right you're a real Irishman you get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there you got the potatoes yeah. and the puccine huh? and the puccine oh yeah there you are born and bred yeah in uh, County Meath a place called Navin Yes, yes, it's P. Bezzo time, hon. And it's a very special P. Bezzo this week because it comes from none other than Carol Mannion, former Roscommon midfielder, a dear friend of the show, and currently seeking enlightenment, enlightenment in the land of the rising sun. That's Japan owned, by the way, not North County Dublin. You're kind of looking at me funny there. Hmm. Uh, it's a rite of passage, of course, for many Roscommon footballers. Harry Keegan, Francie Grant, Junior McManus, they've all done it. Uh, Don Cannell and Eddie Lowen actually run a Buddhist monastery there just outside French Park. Dirk Duggan, of course, is a Shaolin master when he's not doing shift work at the guards. Anyway, I digress. Carl, over to you. Hi, lads. Hope all's well at home. He's, Hi, Carl. He's, he's such, such, a a, man. such a polite such man. man. Uh, I had an enjoyable listen to your podcast where you reviewed the National League finals last week. The Rossies are coming, as Ken said, uh, while staying in Echoin Temple on Mont Koyasan. That is the home of Shingon Esoteric Buddhism located in southern Japan. It was interesting to hear you speak about John Evans aiming to be at the top. One of the teachings we learned in Echoin was that the feeling of no obstruction and no fear will lead you to ultimate nirvana. Quite apt to be learning that while listening to your take on Roscommon's ambitions. Below is a pick outside the entrance to the, te- to the temple. Hashtag, be bezel. All the best. Chat soon, Carol. Carol Manning, you will return from Japan. A changed man, centred, mindful, and the owner of a brand new Pierce Brosnan Embergen Shoutout t-shirt. Congratulations to you, Carol. Well done, Carol. That's right. Nice to now, since Conor McGregor's meteoric rise in the last year so a lot of people have, in Ireland have generally fallen into one of two very defined camps either you love McGregor and the entire sport of MMA or you can't stand him and you hate UFC in particular and maybe MMA in general the problem with this is, is there's not always room for a more detailed nuanced look at why the sport appeals to some people on more than the obvious physical level um, Kerry Howley has managed to tap into that sort of appeal in her book Throne and she joins us now Kerry thanks very much for coming on the show first of all it's great to have you on Thanks so much for having me. We've tried to explain a little bit about what what's going on, the fictional narrator kid who um, wanders in to see a mixed martial arts fight taking place in the same conference centre that Kit is in for, uh, well, for a conference, captivated by what she sees, which becomes the jumping off point for a meditation on the state of ecstasy. Can you describe this feeling? What actually happens to Kit during the first fight she sees? Sure. I mean, I think of it as... Um, an intensity of focus. Uh, I think it's a feeling that other people associate with live music or with kind of the sublime when you encounter some majestic vista in nature. But it's a feeling of at once being outside of yourself, of kind of watching yourself, watching something. Um, And also, I think, in some ways, the opposite, this intensity of focus, of being completely and utterly absorbed in an act. And I think there's something about the violence 
in MMA that makes that possible. Well, I did want to ask you about that. Is there something specific to MMA? You mentioned the violence. I mean, could the same thing happen with other combat sports? If people were... Uh, maybe Mayweather Pacquiao is the wrong example because not too many people were that enamored by that particular fight, but could it happen in other sports? I've had this question before, and I, I'm honestly not sure. There's something particular about MMA, these moments that seem almost outside of civilization. And what's so interesting to me is this juxtaposition of this um, this deep refinement, right? In order to perfect all of these different arts, these different martial arts, it takes years and years of discipline and practice. I mean, clearly, this is a product of civilization. But then in a wonderful fight, in a, in a fight that's working in the right way, you have these moments of brutality that seem outside of civilization, that just seem so atavistic. And, and that juxtaposition of refinement and um, brutality, I, I think that is central to my personal fascination. Well, the narrator, um, Kit's saying that essentially she thinks that she can glimpse something in here that's missing from uh, mm-hmm. our culture today. I mean, why do you think there is a, a sort of sense of the exotic missing? Why is it important if it is missing? I think people are really frightened of that kind of abandon. I mean, I think there's a lot of social control um, enacted specifically to avoid that kind of abandon, right? I mean, here, MMA is still seen as kind of an outsider activity. Um, The men who I followed were conscious of being nonconformist in their choice of activity, right? They weren't the men who had pursued football or basketball, um, sports that are more, that, that elicit more social approval. Um, I think, I think people are afraid. And I think it's interesting that the roots of MMA come from Brazil, which is a country that still celebrates the ecstatic that's obviously known for carnival and for um celebrating this kind of abandon yeah and you describe say the relationship uh, between the raider and these fighters uh, is that of space taker is the term that you use can you describe what that means being a space taker involves simply being around to ward off the loneliness that i think so many fighters find um a little bit scary, and can certainly throw them off their game. Um, Particularly Eric constantly needed people around, people to bounce ideas off of, people to laugh around. Um, He would get a little bit um, edgy and kind of um, nervous if there were ever moments of aloneness. And some of the most scary moments for him in the book involve him leaving his camp in Iowa where he has a community for a new life in Milwaukee where he doesn't have people and he he really isn't prepared for that. I mean, the, you know, Kate is kind of looking for uh, these uh, these fleeting moments where she can sort of experience, you know, escape from her own skin. I think she puts it at one point. And also she wants to write this great uh, philosophical work. Uh, what about the fighters themselves? Why are they doing it? I mean, is it more complicated than simply the desire for money, fame, and sex? It's definitely more complicated than that, particularly for Sean. So one of the characters in the book is not in the UFC. He's 
fighting in these smaller fights across the Midwest. And of course, there are you know hundreds of young fighters across the United States who are fighting in high school gyms and strip clubs and county fairgrounds, right? And they're making maybe $500 a fight. Um, and it's certainly not about fame or fortune for them, especially if they don't expect to make it to the UFC. Um, Sean's attitude was that of an artist, really. He thought, this was this is what my life is about. I'm a fighter. This is what I do. Um, I think he really relished the feeling of being in the cage, even when he was losing. He would emerge completely elated um, with on this high that I never saw from him any other time. And I think that was motivating for him and, and his identity as a fighter. For Eric, the fighter I follow who is in the UFC, um, it might seem a little bit more conventional. He certainly was interested in fame and fortune. Um, but at the same time, he also he had that same high inside the cage that Sean did. We're obviously all quite interested at the moment in Conor McGregor, who is going to be fighting for a world title against uh, Jose Aldo. Uh, another, mm-hmm. You mentioned the origins of this being in Brazil. He's a Brazilian fighter. He's been one of these legendary figures. And he, he appears in your book, albeit as a, a background, almost a mythical figure, really. Yes. Who, one, one, of the, one of the boys is supposed to be fighting and it never quite happens. Yeah, uh, the the dream of fighting Jose Aldo, who has just been unbeatable up until now. And a lot of that story is about waiting to fight Jose Aldo because he was injured and then Eric was injured. I think so much of the book is about the difficulty of waiting. You know, everyone thinks about the difficulty of those moments in the cage, but I think it's the long, long months in between fights that um, in which the obstacles often seem insurmountable. Yeah, I mean, there's there's, there's great stuff on, for instance, the, the whole process of making weight, uh, which just sounds mm-hmm. so nightmarish. But I mean, on the, you know, but poor old uh, Eric Koch never does get to fight Jose Aldo. Um, injuries intervene on either side and, and it never ultimately gets rescheduled for a third time. But um, Conor McGregor, bearing, uh, you know, assuming nothing goes wrong, is going to fight Jose Aldo. I don't know if you followed any of the any of the build-up to this one, Carrie, or whether you've you've got much of an interest in this uh, in Eric Koch's division outside Eric Koch himself. Um, I wondered what you made of the approach that uh, Conor McGregor has taken. He seems to have made a a big profile for himself in uh, in a short space of time. Uh, and I wouldn't have said that he, he gave Jose Aldo, this invincible legendary figure uh, uh, from this book, a great deal of respect. I have kind of distanced myself from the UFC since finishing the book. I needed, just needed some emotional distance. And I want to be able to come back to fighting as a spectator rather than someone who's always kind of like noting um, every aspect of the fight to make a work of art out of whatever emerges. So um, I haven't necessarily followed Conor McGregor's story, but I have heard that he's something of a Chael Sonnen figure and that he is kind of talking his way into fights and um, trying to build more of a persona, which I, I think that many fighters in the UFC have kind of avoided. They didn't want to be conflated with, say, um, WWE, with the fake wrestling that um, that before MMA became popularized, a lot of people would conflate 
the UFC and the, the fake wrestling that people are more aware of. So even when I was writing this book, people would say to me, is, is it real? You know, like, um, and so there was a period in which people in the UFC really wanted to be known as athletes. And I think they would avoid that kind of trash talking. Maybe it's coming back a little bit. All right. Well, the book is called Throne. Kerry Howdy, it's been great talking to you in the program. Thanks a million. Thanks so much. Every so often I'm on the bus and I suddenly turn around and bite someone. John Hayes I'm talking about, Owen. Yeah. John Hayes. Now, I always thought that was ridiculous. He had won the victory over himself. He loved Brendan Rogers. That's where it goes from. Thanks a lot, Pepe. Fair to say, anybody could have managed those guys? No, of course not. Let me show you right now for you give it up. That's quite interesting. I hadn't really thought of Conor McGregor's... I'm quite interested in his... The appeal of McGregor, the insanely... uh, effective marketing job that he's done and it seems to have driven quite a bit of it himself but part of the reason it seems to be well certainly this is uh, what Kerry feels would be that not there actually aren't that many people in, in UFC operating the way he does you kind of assume that there would be I guess you know that, that, that you sell yourself by being this complete egomaniac and all the kind of things that the, what McGregor, that McGregor puts across but actually she was saying a lot of the as we've heard there a lot of the competitors over the years have been a bit worried about going that way because they don't want their sport to be seen with uh, as too similar to wrestling or essentially a fake sport that just is built on hype alone. Yeah, well, I mean, maybe oftentimes you will find that, you know, as, I mean, remember that the sport has only really been established in the last 20 years, 20, 25 years, you know. Um, she actually goes into that a bit in the book. Um, uh, the the kind of how it sort of spread out of Brazil and how that uh, how that t- all took place. But oftentimes you find when something is kind of founded, you know the the original the kind of founders are these austere and principled kind of people, and then as it goes on, it, be, it gradually becomes decadent. So Conor McGregor is maybe like. Um, you know, he's not too worried about the founding fathers of nah, UFC and what they do. No, it's once once it, it's you get, it's just a different attitude from sport that's already established, which it, which it is. You mm. know, um, suddenly people co- are coming to it with a slightly different attitude. So something that maybe would have been frowned upon or considered outré back in the day is, is now the uh, actually the, the way to go. That book is out now. If you want to have a read, coming up in the Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast. That's. Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I want to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you know? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I'm down to Anfield and we'll see them all. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. Are you messy? Yeah, you're going to talk a bit about Leo Messi. I mean. It's, it's difficult even to think of what to say. Lionel Messi is really, really good. <laughs> he keeps doing this. Uh, I mean, poor old Jerome Boateng it was last night, getting the James Milner treatment. Um, you know, absolutely uh, fantastic. So we're going to talk a, bit, a little bit about uh, Barcelona and their forward line and their how, how they've kind of become so successful this season with Tim Vickery. And Richie Sadler is going to be in the studio as well, and we'll talk to him a little bit about... Um, what it takes to... 
How co- cocky does a signing have to be to make it big at Manchester United? Yeah, apparently uh, quite cocky, it turns out. Me- Memphis Depay apparently knows knows he's a good bit of stuff and isn't afraid to go around telling oh, people. Oh, he's, he's good. Just ask him. He'll tell you. But is, <laughs> yeah, is that maybe what you need to be to make it at these very top clubs? All right. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Ken. And thank you, Owen. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you, Thanks, Owen. guys. You can have a look at irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts to have a listen to some of the other Irish Times podcasts. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Second Captains. We'll chat to you again soon. Listen to the football show later. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.